Thank you, Eve. Man, I had the best conversation with Simon. Uh, he was kind of, I said, dude, you're messing with my hair. And she goes, that's not hair, you're mostly bald. And I'm like, dude, the integrity of that person's insight. And we've got a new camera here, I think, but I always wondered, because I remember we used to record weddings, sometimes VHS weddings, and you know, there are a lot of pastors that are bald, and it used to be in the 70s, a lot of them would do comb-overs, which was a deception that the devil had worked into the church, that people thought comb-overs worked, they didn't. But I remember this pastor was a man of full integrity, he did not cover up the glory of his chrome dome. And as I was filming him, it was a wedding, the light would hit his baldness and it would cause a burn on the old school VHS camera. So it looked like this guy, it was Pentecost. It was just this blaze of light that would cause these burn trails on the screen for those of you that remember that or some of you that are retro VHS cultists. And I just thought, is that happening to me today? Am I bald enough to have a little Shekinah glory on my head? All right, so anyway, I, I, these kids are awesome. I asked Simon, I said, he goes, you know what? I didn't want to go to church today. Today, I want to play video games some more. I said, what do you think God's favorite video game is? He goes, I don't know, I should ask him. So I thought that was pretty cool. Um, last night, um, yeah, last night I, uh, watched a documentary on Lady Diana with Adrian. Adrian's always been someone very interested in the story of Lady Diana. And it's one of those events, like, you remember, where were you when uh, Princess Diana or Lady Diana died? And uh, I remember I was at my house, which I'm, I'm at a lot, my house a lot. And I remember, I didn't really take it in at an emotional level. I didn't have much empathy for those who had lost someone. I just thought, oh my gosh, they're gonna make a bigger deal of this than Mother Teresa, which was kind of a snarky response. You know, now I feel like I'm a lot more emotionally healthy right now, and I grieve the loss of any human being. And I think I've been able to embrace the universal preciousness of people to a greater level. But watching this documentary, and if you know my wife, she's crying the whole time. You know, there's so many times where she just cannot wear makeup because she would have raccoon eyes because she's so emotionally vibrant in her tears. But we're watching this, and it struck me. This is a woman that everyone believed would one day be queen. Yet, this is a woman that would kiss AIDS patients in the 80s when people were debating whether or not they should be allowed in the same hospital as other people. This is a person who embraced and held what was the most excluded group of people in the 1980s where people afflicted with HIV AIDS. Um, this is a person who was able to parlay their influence into banning the export from the kingdom she was a representative of. The United Kingdom manufactured landmines that were exported all over the world, and I've personally seen people missing limbs from those landmines. And that she used her influence, her celebrity, basically invested what little power she had, because you know the monarchy is basically just a tourist revenue generator for the UK. You know, castles, kings, queens, merchandise to sell. 
you know, really Parliament has most of the power, but she was able to uh, parlay her influence or status for things that are really important to Jesus Christ. And where, uh, you know, in the past I would have focused on the fact, well, her husband and her were cheating on each other, this, that, and the other, because, you know, she was a, a broken, depressed person like I am and many of us are, right? And she's self-medicated in a lot of ways, understandably. But now, I, uh, instead of thinking of the total depravity people, I like to think of the fractured beauty of where we can see Jesus showing up amidst all of our brokenness. Within a fractured beauty, I saw someone who cared about what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. And I, I saw someone who, despite background, despite uh, sexual abuse, despite uh, self-hating, someone who sought to uh, provide for people who were injured by the powers of this world, yet she would harm herself and was cutting and had bulimia and self-loathing. A complex person like all of us, where you, how many of you like, are just amazed by the beauty of other humans around you, yet at the same time you struggle with hating yourself. Anyone have that paradox going on? It's like, you know, she was one of us. But I think what people were articulating, a God-given longing. The fan base for Diana actually indicates a supernatural reality. And that is people are longing for a king that cares for the little people. People are lying for a royal power that says the least is the most important. And I believe what happened is the intersectional nature of her care for the poor and her title is princess. Those things intersecting hit upon a God-given longing to all of us that we want someone in charge that says what we know in our heart matters matters. We want someone in charge that sees the abuse of power as a problem, not abusing power. And so it really struck me um, that we live in a culture where there's two kinds of leaders that appeal to people. And sometimes people conflate these two. There's the leader that appeals to the powerless because they love the powerless. And there's the leader who runs after power so much that we think they're powerful enough to bully other people on behalf of this before they bully us. People want leaders to have the power to bully other people before they can bully us. So we have this twin nature. People want for power. People want for inclusion. But what we see in world history is more often is power is used to fuel exclusion, not inclusion. Power is used to fuel exclusion, not inclusion. And I want to read one of the countless stories of the beauty of the early church in the corruption, corrosive power of earthly governments to corrupt the message of Christ. The idea, um, did, uh, you guys might or might not be aware, but a lot of times people will see this intersection between their faith in this man, Jesus, and the desire for power and privilege, prestige, economic security, national security, your nation prospering over other nations. Do you know that there are people that conflate that with following Jesus? And it's not new. It's not new. So um, 
I'm totally stealing from Adrian here. Adrian, as you guys know, is a huge history buff. And sometimes our history buffness intersects where she's reading. She's a, a big, uh, reads everything you could about abolitionism uh, and really enjoys reading a lot about women's suffrage movements. And she was reading this book about a pilgrimage that the author, Timothy Egan, who was raised Irish Catholic. I haven't read the whole book. I'm just reading the bit Adrian shared with me, by the way. So any, any like intellectual or scholastic credibility you would give me for pulling out this book you haven't heard of, don't. This is, I married well. So Timothy Egan wrote about a pilgrimage from Canterbury to Rome. It was like a reverse pilgrimage talking about how Europe became so-called Christianized. And in this one passage, I think he summarizes something we need to understand, and this is a repeated trope. So this is story time with Jeff. Timothy Egan, A Pilgrimage to Eternity. You can get it from your library. Uh, you can get Overdrive and get free audiobooks if you're road tripping it. And you know, sometimes you need to do other things when you drive versus rocking out to music. Sometimes you need to read books, it's good. So uh, he's talking about uh, traveling in France. France, not French. Who made French? That, that, that'd actually be a good Chicken McNuggets dip. French dressing with ranch. French? Was that mentioned in Breaking Bad? Oh, well, I, I, I am the uh, Heisenberg of preaching. No, I hope not. Yeah, I got the hair for it. So well slept, I'm up and outside. Just as the first steaming cup of coffee is produced in the courtyard, then I hit the Ampula Trail, strolling to the place where the oil that baptized King Clovis has long been stored. The St. Remy Basilica and Abbey, a UNESCO World Heritage Site. The large sculpture out front depicts a very ripped-looking Clovis, naked, but for a loincloth, getting anointed by Bishop Remigius on Christmas Day in 496. With this sacred ceiling, the king of the Franks was linked to the kings of Israel. Back to King David, who we've been talking about, parenthetically speaking. The story is that the dove of the Holy Spirit descended from the heavens, bearing a vial of oil. It's been called the baptism of France. You know, a little remark here, by the way. So basically saying the king got better treatment from the Holy Spirit than Jesus did. The, the Holy Spirit just announced something there. Here is the Holy Spirit also was like a delivery drone of special oil. I don't think this guy was getting more than Jesus here. So that's just my remark. Um, at this time, there were plenty. Listen to this. Uh, at this time, there were plenty of Christians living among the ruins of the Roman Empire. The faith had spread through peaceful means, and the church, with its new network of bishops, deacons, priests, and monks, with its monastic centers increasingly large property holdings, held many communi communities together after the fall of Rome. What Clovis did was unite the tribal Franks under the banner of one rule, a kingdom, blessed by the highest of Christian authorities. The anointment sealed God to crown. Uh, 
sealing God the crown. That should sound like I'm saying adultery right there. Uh, sealed God the crown. The divine right of kings, the idea that monarchs get their authority from the creator, can be traced in part to the union of the militant Clovis to the mostly pacifistic Christians scattered on this side of the Alps. Clovis is considered by many to be the founder of France. But the conversion of Clovis, we shouldn't forget, was purely mercenary, conditioned on victory over one of his enemies. While waging pagan on pagan war, Clovis was persuaded by his Christian wife, uh, Clotilda, to give her God a try, just as Bertha had talked Ethelbert into her faith in Canterbury. When it worked, Clovis switched. Though as fresh-minted Catholic king of the Franks, he ignored, Clovis ignored the central tenet of his new religion, and he killed off most members of his family. To, relate, to be related to him by blood was to know your days were numbered. After each murder, Clovis built a church. This wasn't the first time a ruler had tied his realm to religion in Europe. That occurred nearly 200 years earlier. The Roman Empire had been mostly tolerant of other, other faiths through the years, with the exception of some binges of gaudy violence against Christians by sociopaths like Nero. By one scholarly estimate, the total number of Christians martyred by Romans was fewer than a thousand. As, as a convert to words of Jesus, Emperor Constantine continued the open worship tradition. His edict of Milan promised that every man may have a complete toleration in the practice of whatever, whatever worship he has chosen. But it would not last. After the Romans made Christianity the state religion, the persecuted became the persecutors. And don't we hear about that on CNN and all the other networks? The persecuted became the persecutors. By the end of the fourth century, under Theodosius, Christianity was cemented as the empire's official faith. And within generation time, more Christians were killed by other Christians, Orthodox believers versus heretics, heretics, than all those slain under 300 years of Roman mistreatment. When Christians embraced the Roman view of power, they killed more Christians than Nero ever even hoped he could have killed. Think about this. And those slain during the 300 years of uh, Roman mistreatment, in addition, classical statues, temples, and libraries holding the collective wisdom of Greek thinkers were destroyed as pagan artifacts. Communal Christian gathering places gave way to great concentrations of wealth and power. A papal saying was coined, Roma lacuda est causa finita est. Roman, Rome has spoken, the case is closed. It was a breathtaking transition, almost unfathomable. The Roman Empire adopting the religion of a small creed that had no armed legions, no great loyal, royal families. Its followers made up barely 5% of the population. Christianity, it's spread by word of mouth, not organizational muscle. The word was powerful, a gospel of humility and love of fellow humans. A slave could be a Christian. 
But while this union of empire and God aided the rapid expansion of so-called Christianity, it might have been what brought original sin back into the church. With the power came intolerance, secular control, organized killing. I'll just stop there. Sounds like today, people who advocate violence towards anyone in the name of Jesus, when, and before anyone accuses me of just liberal talking points or something like this, let I remind you that biblical Christianity is about laying down your life for your enemies so they might know the love of Christ. Biblical, if you're going to use the word evangelical, you know, the good news message, the gospel message of the kingdom, you have to talk about a kingdom of laying down your power on behalf of the powerless. So in that tiny little sliver of imitation of Jesus, they might see the radiance of God's love for them and commit their entire life to follow him. This isn't some um, superior, superior, uh, Flexing of the intelligentsia, liberal elite to co-opt biblical faith. Biblical faith is sacrifice for the vulnerable on behalf of any, with any power or no power you have. So people might know that they are precious to the risen Savior, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. All right? I'm, I told you when we began Matthew that we would skip into, we would sometimes fast forward a bit. It wasn't going to be totally a linear book. And I'm just going to read the Beatitudes, which are the beginning of what I like to call Jesus, the Jesus Manifesto. This is, this is the constitution of the Christian faith. This is, you know, if you want to be a loyal constitutionalist, be loyal to this constitution because it rocks. It's... This Jesus Manifesto, the Sermon on the Mount, is in three chapters, I think, the most compelling words ever strung together in human history. And I would say this. Do you realize there never would have been the evil of the Crusades? There never would have been the evil of the Crusades if the church followed the Jesus Manifesto. If the church followed the Jesus Manifesto and not the Roman Manifesto, People wouldn't have prioritized trying to conquer the Near East in the name of Jesus and slaughtering countless Muslim peoples. That would not have happened if the kingdom were centric. So let me read. This is the apple of God's eye passage. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the hillside and sat down, and the disciples came to him. He took a deep breath and began teaching Blessings on the poor in spirit. The kingdom, it's all yours. Blessings on the mourners. You will be comforted. Blessings on the meek. In your meekness, you will inherit the earth. Blessed are people whose hunger and thirst is for God's justice. You will one day be satisfied. Blessings on the merciful. You're going to receive mercy as well. Blessings on the pure in heart. You will see God. Blessings on the peacemakers. You will be called God's children. 
blessings on people who are persecuted because of God's way. The kingdom of heaven belongs to you. I've got to make another remark on this. Do you see? The blessings isn't. Blessing are you who give Christians power and influence in the culture of your nation, preventing persecution. It doesn't say that. You, anyone that promises uh, Christians power and influence um, are echoing what Satan said to Jesus during the temptation of Christ. That if you only bow down to me, all these kingdoms are yours. Anyone that promises you power, run. Because the power is the power to lay down your life. And by the way, I'm not saying like everyone, that, that's not the path of misery right now. Do you see me? Listen, I don't know where I would be without Jesus. I've got this biological struggle with depression. And just in reading these words gives me joy. All right? This isn't the way of misery. This isn't an ascetic practice of where I'm causing myself pain because I'm ugly to God. This is liberation that I don't need to sweat all that stuff. This is joy. This is what frees you up to really dance and be a fool and have fun and party because you're celebrating you're not numbing. Okay, that was a long rabbit trail. Sorry, Sermon on the Mount. Blessings on people who are persecuted because of God's way, the kingdom of heaven, it's all yours. Blessing on you when people slander you and persecute you and say all kinds of wicked things about you falsely because of me. Celebrate and rejoice. There's a great reward for you in heaven. That's how they persecute the prophets who went before you. So, what's that saying? When, when Christians get kind of dragged through the dirt in the media, our deal isn't to whine and say, I'm being oppressed, I'm being oppressed. It's like, oh my gosh, what we're doing is attracting some power, attracting some flack. It must be working. If powerful people don't like our love of the powerless, then there must be some fire here because people don't extinguish non-fires. They try to extinguish fires. Unfortunately, they've got a squirt gun and we've got a supernova when it comes to the power of the Holy Spirit. Going back to Diana, here's someone that had this inborn, nascent longing for those, I mean, Diana grew up rich. She was wealthy, yet she longed for people with AIDS to know they were fully accepted. Um, there was a whole BBC special when she appeared at uh, opening the very first AIDS-dedicated hospice ward. You know, back in the 80s, you, AIDS hospice houses used to have to be hidden in Columbus. The addresses were not published. I was part of a ministry uh, in high school that did cleaning for AIDS hospice houses until the leaders in the church housing got wind of it and thought it wasn't a good idea and canceled it. Um, they were wrong. God have mercy on them. Because now, from the way I read the Bible, I said, man, God was speaking to us. Thank you, Jesus. But Diana opened up the first dedicated public AIDS hospice ward, and then the BBC the next day, the regular media was saying, how inappropriate would it be for royalty to appear with people afflicted in such a way and actually kiss them? What a bad example to set. She's, in, she's involving herself in things that are none of her business. By the way, I'm not here to, like, canonize Diana. Did every one of you, the reason I'm saying this is there's a lot of self-harm at Central Vineyard, either emotionally you know when you speak and say bad things about yourself, it is similar to cutting. And I want to say it this way, because your brain is an organ. And when you are 
denigrating yourself. You're denigrating someone who bears the image of God. When you denigrate yourself verbally or in your mind, the more you say it, that your body, whether or not one area of your subconscious you know it's not true, your body believes it's true. And the brain is part of your body. And the enteric nervous system is part of your body. So wouldn't it be great? A lot of us in misguided ways think when we denigrate ourselves, somehow we're engaging in Christian humility. And it's a good practice. And we've even had teachers that like uh, go, that all they do is talk about how bad people are. When, if that were true, if original sin could totally ruin the image bearing status of humans and the artist wasn't very good. Imagine if someone uh, installs a roof on this, and then we have a light, gentle summer rain, and it starts leaking. We're not going to say roofs are totally depraved. We're going to say the roofer made a mistake. Now, I liken uh, the fractured beauty of humankind to, like, Van Gogh paintings. And by the way, I've repeated this over and over, mainly because I want you to remember it and maybe even say it yourself and maybe even believe it. And that's this. Van Gogh's paintings all changed color because the paints he used had unstable chemicals in them. So every one of his paintings is damaged like the Venus de Milo that's missing its arms. But that has not caused museums to consign it to the rubbish heap because the colors are damaged. People still wait in line to go into their Van Gogh experience and go to the Van Gogh Museum in uh, you know, Amsterdam, or the exhibit they have in Chicago, or the one coming to Col that's in Columbus, or the five Van Gogh paintings that we have hanging in the Columbus Museum of Art. We go there, I impart as an act of worship to see how magnificent God was to breathe his spirit into this mentally ill dear man, Vincent Van Gogh. And uh, he's just, I mean, he's got, he's a historical figure that has my heart. Do you know he was a pastor before he got fired? He was a pastor and he would preach sermons in the mines because the people were forced by their so-called Christian uh, bosses to work seven days a week. He would go into the mines and preach to the miners and his, the wealthy patrons fired him from being a pastor. He said, what a great way to get fired. I, I hope if you ever get fired, let's get fired for Jesus-y stuff, amen? So anyway, the same way is we are all fractured beauty. And that doesn't mean that God wants to guide us into obedience where we're continually renovated. You know those discolored inks and paints in our life can actually be restored without damaging the artwork? Do you know that uh, where, where the Venus de Milo is not going to grow back arms, but we can grow back the scarification in our lives as we enter into intimacy with Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. So when I sp tell this Diana story, and I'm talking about the king, I want to say this, is, guys, we need to confess sin. And here's the sin. Hating, on our, hating what God loves, which is you. And a lot of us don't even know we hate ourselves. We do things to self-medicate that destroy our image. We further vandalize our image by self-medicating because we don't think we're worth it. We don't think we're worth it. Jesus says we are. And so, but the way this happens is, listen, Diana, had she become queen, she would, that never would have changed things altogether. Might have marginally changed things. It did change the landmine issue. Praise God, we need more of that. But what we're really longing for is a king that isn't up for election, that doesn't have to be recognized by the queen that's coming before, that doesn't have to have an act of parliament to 
approve their funding. We long for Jesus. In Matthew 6.33, says, seek first God's kingdom. Everything else will be sorted out. And what that means is don't have a second place. Don't have a second place. And I wanted to, talking about the powers, we saw the power of Clovis and Constantine others is the power to abuse precious image bearers in the name of Jesus. Guys, I've talked about self-abuse, but there's oftentimes Christians will abuse others. Um, one way is through excommunication, another way is through disciplining people out, whatever terminology you want to use. Uh, the Bible mentions rigorous boundaries on behavior for people in power. And there is discipline within the church. But if you look in the context of each element of discipline, it's when someone is exerting power in a way that will harm the powerless. So, for instance, uh, people are coming to Galatia trying to build a caste system within the church where certain people had privilege over other people and were super Christians. And then all these poor Roman slaves that found out they were valuable find out, well, we're not circumcised Jewish people, so we don't, we're back to our we don't matter status. And Paul is like, hey, this person's going to exclude the vulnerable. That was a, it wasn't a theological debate. It was a practical belief that would exclude those in pain. And yeah, there's discipline around that. There's a discipline around, in a patriarchal society, you know, men seizing someone else's wife, presumably because they had more power than someone else. Um, King David, Bathsheba, you know, we're going to talk about David and the abuse of power uh, next week. We see these pictures of church discipline was to protect the vulnerable. But you know what we hear about on Channel 4, 6, and 10 and other places when they talk about churches and use the word cult in the same language? We hear um, about very powerful people who are threatened by powerless people who are suffering something or not. I know people who have been disciplined or removed from groups because of mental illness. I know people... Uh, who just had questions and really had their feelings hurt and wanted to bring it up. It was called divisive behavior. When you have someone who's basically saying, I need healing right now, I'm bleeding out. You're being divisive, you're out. Listen, if a church structure favors the powerful over the powerless, it ain't Jesus. It ain't Jesus. Church discipline protects the vulnerable Church discipline is not a tool for the powerful who are threatened by the vulnerable. Um, we've, had, we've actually had to, we've, in the past of a church, we've had enough years where I can tell stories and people aren't going to put names to it, except maybe Brian, who's been here from day one, Brian and Erica. But we, we had to exclude one person from going to home groups. Why? Because this person was a very powerful personality that would sexually harass people, that viewed uh, women as objects, and this person just was an intimidating presence we said, you can't go to these groups. He goes, oh, you're, you're spiritually abusing me. I said, no, we're preventing you from hurting vulnerable people. Sorry, you are loved. You are precious. The best way I can honor you, precious person, is not let you offend. The best way I can honor someone who's sexually harassing people is not set the table for their harassment. It is not grace to cover up abuse of power in the church for the sake of the gospel. It is evil. And we see uh, 
a constant strain in the last three years has been the great exposure of power-hungry people in the church stepping down left and right because how they've abused their power has been uncovered. And you know I say that? I'm not saying, oh, the witness of Christ is being tarnished. I'm saying false witnesses of Christ are being excluded from telling the story. When that happens, good news. People, it's amazing how, you know, I used to be in a part of a Christian organization uh, hey, 35 years ago or something that if a woman got pregnant out of wedlock, she was in trouble, but no mention of the man was mentioned. We actually called that the abortion policy, by the way. It said, like, if a woman, women get all the penalty if they've had pregnancy out of marriage and they're going to get kicked out of the school and whatnot and everything. I said, well, yeah, you, you want to, how can you be pro-life and encourage a policy like that? I'm like, hey, buy them their first onesie when you find out. You know, get a couple of little toot and some Thomas the Tank Engine toys and say, hey, we're celebrating your baby before it's even here yet. Guys, the power of Jesus manifesting your lives will make you a target of abuse, but it will stop you from abusing others. Do you, there are countless people who would have never been tortured to death if Christians would have believed what Jesus said. If Christians would have obeyed Jesus, there never would have been the Crusades. There never would have been uh, institutional sexual abuse in the Southern Baptist Church. From Sunday school to seminary, it wouldn't have happened. But friends, I don't know if any of you that are in a position of power where you're actively abusing that power to exploit other people. However... I do know many of you, and I, I get to know the kind of the soft white underbelly of a lot of people's lives. And what I know is there is so much self-abuse, self-loathing, and there is so much embraced lies. And I can say that with authority because if I'm just talking about myself, it's accurate. So I want to invite us to stand today. And we were going to celebrate the spilt blood and broken body where the powerful thought they could take out Jesus. <laughs> you know, people say crucifixion is the greatest scandal of Christianity, and how could God let that happen? But I'm saying, if God is the merciful God we read out in scriptures, how could he not manifest himself in self-sacrificial love? If God is a God of love, how could he not lay down his life for others? If God loves you, in male or female, you're all precious equally to Jesus. You know, God doesn't recognize your gender. He recognizes your child's status as a child of him. Now, male or female, slave or Greek, all are one in Jesus. You know, God's term for you, I want everyone's name tag to say beloved. Be beloved Brian, beloved Erica, beloved Dana, beloved Cindy. That's my Or how about just beloved? All right? Many of you have been relegated to the sidelines because people didn't think what you did aligned with Jesus when you knew it did. Many of you have grown up in families, whether Christian or not, they pre preached a message that got neurologically written on your brains that said, you need to be different to be loved. So I want to ask our prayer folks to get in the right. Bring your communion elements. Guys, if, if we can't get prayer for this, let's just quit doing church. Because this, you can just watch the video. 
You can just listen to a clever podcast. There's a lot of better preachers out there on podcasts, I, I swear to you. Just look top 50 sermon podcasts and don't follow anyone who's had plastic surgery. Um, Jesus on the night he was betrayed, took the bread and he broke it, said, this is my body. My body, it's all yours. After the supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Every time you drink it, remember me. The Apostle Paul said, guys, we need to do this until he returns. And I would add, because we're goldfish and we forget about God's love and we need reminders all the time. Amen? So, friends, the majority of you I see today have received the message of exclusion. And I'm not saying you're ever going to be included by the person you're excluded from. But I am saying God's going to accept you. So I want to ask us, as an act of faith, could I have everyone move into the, I want, just to move our bodies, if people could move into the aisles, crunch it, like just kind of disrupt yourself from sitting behind another chair. We've only got a little group of people here. Labor Day weekend, it's raining, and blah de blah de blah School just started. So I could have people get away from your seats, if you guys can crunch up. Now I'm doing this because I've got you halfway to receiving prayer today. <laughs> You know, you've moved your body, you've got your rumpus and your junkus out of the sea. And I want to ask you guys, let's rapid fire, to receive prayer from anyone on here. Line up. If you're waiting for prayer, go ahead and pray for someone next to you. And I want to ask people confess. Don't say, I, I'm worthless. Say, I, be I have believed the lie that I'm worthless. Will you please pray for me? And we would, there's something when another person is a manifestation of the physical presence of Christ saying, that's a lie, you're beloved. Let's receive prayer um, and worship as we wait for prayer. Guys, bless you, amen.